So a good part of this current message series that I'm doing is about staying in touch with reality. That's what the phrase good looking out means. It means about staying in touch with what's going on in our lives while it's going on, recognizing our very human, understandable, um, but still costly propensity to check out, to kind of lose focus, lose contact, conscious contact with our lives. And as an example of what it is to stay in touch with our lives, I used this little figure last week. Oh, I'm not above at all a little emotional manipulation here. Velveteen Rabbit, Marjorie Williams, who's Unitarian, by the way. And what does the Velveteen Rabbit say about what it is to be real? Velveteen Rabbit says, to be real, when we know we're real, it means that a child has loved us for a very, very, very long time, and our fur might be rubbed off. This is where my fur is getting rubbed off a little bit these days. <laughs> Maybe an eye falls out. You know, being real is, is not about being pristine, not about being flawless. One of the hopes of this message series from what I'm talking about is that we encourage all of us, myself included, to continue to stay in touch and recognize in that staying in touch, we discover a deeper capacity for love, connection, awareness, and caring about ourselves and caring for and with each other. This is such an important decision in our spiritual lives to recognize how we lose touch, how we lose focus, and to find means, skillful means, loving means of bringing ourselves back into present full awareness with this moment. I'm going to show you a character right now that kind of uh, is the uh, opposite side of the coin, someone who has checked out entirely. Any of you recognize that? It's the Matrix. Now, if you don't know the Matrix, I cannot spend a lot of time <laughs> telling you about the Matrix here. And I have no red pill to give you to really show you the Matrix this morning. But basically, here's the Matrix, if you don't know. It's a movie a number of years ago, very popular. I encourage you to see it. Um, the Matrix is an artificial world, a fake world, a constructed world, a world that human beings exist in but not really exist because it is a world run by computers, by artificial intelligence. And in this future, in this dystopian future, in this vision of the future that is not at all positive, human beings who exist in the matrix or think they exist in the matrix, normal life, in fact, they exist within these creature-like pods, their life force, their life energy being drained out of them because human beings in the future, in reality, are fuel for the machines. So just maybe think about that as a metaphor next time we reflexively reach into our pocket. To, <laughs> I'll think about that next time. Who really is owning who here? <laughs> so this is a character named Cypher in The Matrix. And he is one of the freedom fighters, I guess you could say, one of those people who is calling others to reestablish connection with the real world and leave the matrix. Now, what he's doing in this scene right here is he is holding up a piece of, uh, you can't really tell from here, it actually looks well done, but it's actually a perfectly cooked, kind of rare, medium rare steak. And he's in the matrix during this scene, and he's explaining that although my mind knows that this isn't real. My mind is telling me that this steak is juicy and delicious, even though it's not real. I don't care anymore. <laughs> See, this is the moment, a critical moment in the movie when Cypher decides that he is going to 
put himself into the matrix for good. He is going to lose contact with the real. He is going to put himself to sleep, really. He is going to anesthetize himself. He opts for the fake world. He vows not to wake up. Here's the thing in this. The cost of his checking out, like the cost of all of our checking out, is not just about ourselves. In the movie, his decision to check out is, in fact, selling out all of his friends, selling out their lives. His private comfort comes at the expense of other people's real lives. His refusal to see, to live in what is real, means that other people will suffer. This is why this capacity to stay in touch with the real, this capacity for good looking out, is so very important. And I particularly want to say it's important right now, at this time, this day, this Sunday, that is unbelievably just a month and I think four days after Sandy Hook, after what happened in Newtown, Connecticut. It seems like it's been with us a lot longer, doesn't it? At least that's my perspective on it. That's how it feels to me. This was my prayer at the time. I put it on Facebook, I shared it with you all, it continues to be my prayer, that may our hearts stay broken open for as long, for as long as it takes us to change. That is still very much my prayer. I know from talking with many of you that you really fervently wish that we can change our laws, our cultures, our hearts around the issues of violence and the practice of gun ownership in this country that puts thousands of real lives imperiled, kills thousands of real lives every year. And I know that many of you have been following this into action, action that I consider to be wise and loving, calling elected officials, writing elected officials, signing petitions, wanting to, even if it's just incrementally, ask what we can do to change a culture that still commits so many acts of violence. Now, this aspiration to change our laws, our hearts, our culture, of course, it will take time. It will take a lot of time. And I think what animates this change for so many of us is this desire to stay in touch with those 27 people who were murdered. I include Mr. Lanza's mother in that. She was a victim too, and especially the lives of those 20 children who were killed. The further and further we get away from anything happening that either really elevates us or really lays us low. The further and further we get away from something truly extraordinary that happens, the more is our human tendency to turn it into a statue, turn, turn it into an idol, to turn those people into symbols. And so I think the first core aspiration of letting our hearts stay broken, open enough so that we can change in relationship to Sandy Hook is this, those lives are not symbols. They were lives. A life is never a symbol. A life is a life. To stay with that, to remember how these people were loved and beloved and the joy that they brought to each other's lives and, of course, the challenge that they brought to each other's lives because to remember the particularity of a life is to remember it as it was, not as we imagine it to be. 
So to stay in touch with that commitment to see these people and their lives as real also means, for me, if I really want to change laws, culture, hearts in this country, to know some facts, to know that of any industrialized country that America continues to have the highest rates of gun violence and murder. It means knowing and taking the time to learn and to read that there are studies from School of Harvard Public Health and University of Pennsylvania that simply carrying or keeping a gun in the home means the likelihood that we will be a victim of gun violence rises astronomically. That does not mean it happens to everyone who carries a gun and keeps a gun in their home. It means, though, that the likelihood is there. It also means for me I've really tried to read these stories as well, too, because I'm not a person who goes gaga in any way over guns. It's not part of my identity. I went to camp for about 10 years. I shot rifles. I actually remember the little target practice that had the little NRA symbol on it. It's the closest thing I ever got to any connection with the NRA in any way. But it was kind of enjoyable, but it's not a core part of my identity. I, I recognize there are people for whom this is a part of their identity. And so I also recognize as well that there are people who use guns for legitimate self-defense, and I don't want to minimize that reality. So seeing part of complex reality, staying in touch with what is, for me the question is, how can we balance that legitimate right to own a firearm for some people with the essential and critical need to keep guns absolutely away from those who would misuse them. It is that second part of the equation that I do not believe receives nearly enough attention, and I don't think we focus enough on how we balance those two competing rights. For me, that's a legitimate question, because truthfully, I don't like it very much. I don't like it very much that the right to own firearms is written into our constitutional legacy. I don't like it that we have a cultural history in this country of massive gun ownership. I may not like it, but if I want to be part of a movement that is going to start to change what is, it first only arises out of an understanding of where we stand right now. Staying in touch with the real is a spiritual imperative. And then, unfortunately, there's a whole other matter that I became particularly aware of this week, that you may have become aware of this week. Not coincidentally, by the way, the first week after the president starts to say we're going to try and change some laws about how we handle, store, keep guns in this country. Some of you may have seen this already, or maybe it's been sent to you. It's been viewed only a million and a half times online on YouTube, which still is a drop in the bucket of the entirety of American culture, but it's not nothing. The idea is this, that Sandy Hook and Newtown was an elaborate and complete hoax that is being used as pretense to take people's guns. It's out there. Maybe someone just texted you about it right now. <laughs> it's all right. It happens. You gave a great excuse for everyone else to now, oh, geez, did I turn this off? <laughs> I'll give you an example of this, and I've actually seen it on some folks' Facebook pages. I mean, it looks like breaking news, and it looks like, wow, we're, we're seeing behind the looking glass here this conspiracy. It opens up with, NBC admits that the semi-auto rifle was not the murder weapon. Well, when you actually take a look at that piece, it was from less than 24 hours after 
the atrocity, the massacre itself in Sandy Hook, when there was a lot of different information flying all over the place, except the way that this is framed up, the way this is pieced, NBC admits, almost as if, hey, what truth has been hidden from us? But in fact, if you go back and piece together the story, it was the semi-automatic weapon that killed the majority of those people and of those children that Mr. Lanza used. Confirmed by law enforcement, confirmed by the medical examiner. And so this quote-unquote NBC admits, NBC admits nothing. It was a piece of information incomplete at best, taken out of context at worst. And then there's people like this. Maybe you recognize him. His name is James Yeager. His stuff was only viewed a couple hundred thousand times, not over a million times. This past week, he became kind of notorious for putting up a video in which he said, if the government comes to start taking his guns, he will, and these are his words, it's time to start killing people. And maybe it's time, in his words again, for civil war. It's time for people who believe in their gun rights to load their damn mags. One of the ideas behind this is that there is no legitimate excuse for gun safety or gun control. It is all just a pretext for government tyranny and intrusion into our lives. And so I started thinking about a, a, what would I say to Mr. Yeager if I could talk to him. I would, I would want to raise the stakes a little bit. i say, truly, if what we're fighting here is government tyranny, then why stop at guns? Why not equip all Americans with grenades? Shoulder-held surface-to-air missiles. Rocket launchers. I mean, truly, if that's what we're fighting is tyranny, if that's what's really going on, then guns won't be enough. But here's the thing. I don't think what Mr. Yeager is saying is based in the real. I mean, there's a great magazine, you might have read it before, it's called Foreign Policy. It's really a wonky, if you know that word, a little wonky, analytical kind of magazine. And they actually tested some of these theories that are showing up on Facebook, and you'll probably start to see them more in the weeks to come. Does gun ownership have, gun ownership have anything at all to do with a population's ability to overcome, overthrow actual tyrants? And so they take a look, took a look at places like Tunisia or Bahrain or Venezuela, people who actually live under tyrannical regimes, and foreign policy found no connection. In fact, in some cases, an inverse relationship between the amount of guns in a civilian population and their ability to overthrow oppressive regimes. So those are just some of the, the facts. And by the way, if, if you see this video that Sandy Hooks with a hoax, please take yourself immediately to Snopes.com. Y'all know Snopes? You gotta know Snopes. Snopes.com, which is an amazing repository of fact, reality-based source that allows us to counter a lot of the conjecture that's out there on the internet. I mean, maybe you know this one. The first time I became familiar with Snopes is, uh, maybe you see this every year, the government is about to start taxing you for every single email that you send. Shows up every year, someone believes it, goes out on email, gets posted on Facebook. That's the first time I read Snopes.com. Not true. But beyond those facts, there's a deeper question here. And I think it's a question particularly for those of us 
in spiritual community, who are not just asking questions about laws, but are asking questions about our attitudes, our actions, our hearts, and who and what really matters most to us. Is a society that is fear-based a sustainable society? Is a society built upon constant paranoia, not necessary skepticism of government, but constant paranoia? Is that a society that is sustainable or kind? Is that a society that can sustain humane values of compassion, connection, decency, trust, all the things that keeps societies healing and healthy and whole from generation to generation? Without those qualities, cultures will not continue. This kind of domestic arms race <laughs> that people like Mr. Yeager seem to be talking about. There's a great phrase I heard from Josh Marshall's blogger. I like domestic arms race. More and more and more and more. More guns will just make us more fearful and more suspicious. Just a little over a month after Sandy Hook, our culture and our conversation to see the real, to stay in touch with those lives, to recognize the lives lost, the cost of those families, that's starting to get lost in the shuffle now as things get politicized. And this is why it's so important as an ethical and spiritual commitment to those who actually suffered and to those who still continue to suffer from violence to allow ourselves time and time again to bring ourselves back to the real, to not get lost in abstract or symbolic arguments, but to remember the real cost of real lives of people who are hurt, whose lives are damaged or are killed because of violence. This appeal to the real, not the abstraction, is a core of an honest, growing, maturing spiritual life. I got to tell you, the first time that I ever heard this idea of the appeal to the real, I didn't call it back then, but the first time I was really seized by it was um, when I was growing up, uh, I, grew up in a, I grew up Jewish, and I grew up in a, in a progressive, largely progressive, eh, largely, uh, progressive spirit, Jewish spiritual synagogue in which, uh, you know, there weren't like banned books or there weren't like, you know, things we were supposed to stay, with, stay away from because they were dangerous. Although there were a couple things we were told, you know, not to read, you know, encouraged not to read. One of them was The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. <laughs> and The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare, traffics in some really horrendous anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish images. It gave us the Shylock. But I went ahead and read it anyway, because I was a better student than I was a better Jew. And uh, <laughs> what I actually found there, and again, Shakespeare doesn't set Shylock up as totally a tragic figure, kind of a malicious figure, but he puts these words in Shylock's mouth, and it is an appeal to the real. First time I ever heard the realness appealed to in this way. Shakespeare's words, hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as is a Christian. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? I mean, the culture rife with anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews hundreds of years ago, those words must have landed with people somehow. I think Shakespeare was trying to make us a little bit more aware, or those people more aware, of who belonged 
who mattered, whose life was also real. And of course, that lesson from hundreds of years ago continues to find powerful articulation because this is one of the lessons that I take away from Sandy Hook is that although that violence may be particularly extreme and may have happened in a place that we are conditioned to think as unusual for it to be associated with violence, that is not the only examples of violence. Close to home, close to here, Philadelphia. We know that there continue to be people whose lives are taken because of gun violence, and yet we may not see it because maybe it's part of a, a white noise. We just expect it. And so to listen to people like who I'm going to quote you from right now, Eddie Bocanegra, who is an anti-violence activist in Chicago, working with kids, youth, children, cultures that experience tremendous and shattering violence. Eddie Bocanegra, who himself took a life and served almost 15 years in prison and is now one of what they call the interrupters, those people on the ground who stay in touch with people who might be likely to commit crimes or to be victim of gun violence and to see if they can open up space for healing and wholeness and peace. These were Eddie Bocanegro's words after the massacre in Newtown. He says, we have worldwide attention to this tragic event in Connecticut, and it shows us how we value life. It's a shame that murder is not treated the same across the board. This appeal to the real, he says, I hurt the same way you hurt. Murder shouldn't occur, and I say that as someone who took a life. All lives are precious. And one life is not worth any more than the other. We bleed, we hurt, we die, we suffer. That is an appeal to the real. To allow what is real to change us. A reality that is so complex and sometimes so big and so scary that we can't understand it, to allow that kind of reality to change us, that is deep spiritual work. It has meant for me that once again, even though, I mean, if you know my story, I don't partake of drugs or alcohol. I'm sober, and I have no desire to. That said, I'm starting to think it is completely insane the billions of dollars and the lives lost and the criminalization of people who, by the way, don't look at all like me, by and large, who suffer because we have this thing called a drug war. I know you might disagree with me on this one, but I am increasingly saying, believing and perceiving that the only way to approach drugs is through the prism of a mental health and addiction issue and nothing at all to do with criminalization anymore because it simply does not work and it creates so much other violence. For me, that's why I'm not going to partake of marijuana. I don't know if you do. You can tell me if you want to. I don't particularly care. It is a drug that is less harmful than alcohol. I don't encourage you to do it. But that's why I think it was actually good news that in the state of Washington and in the state of Colorado, they legalized marijuana. I don't want you to go out and get high. I want you to stay in touch with your lives. 
But if we as a society are moving to a place that we recognize that the cost of the drug war, imagine if we took the billions of dollars that it takes to fight a war that we will never win and put it into mental health resources and addiction care and took all those nonviolent offenders out of jail, imagine how we might start to transform our society because their lives matter as well. That is staying in touch with the real. The spiritual act of seeing the real is so important, and it also means that sometimes we have to understand that there are all kinds of spirituality that wants to take us away to the real, that wants to put blinders on in front of our deep ways of seeing, our capacity to see deeply. I mean, one of these is, is this. Um, you may have seen this on Facebook or online. This is a quote from the Buddha. Basically, our thoughts create reality. There is, by the way, a great website called fakebuddhaquotes.com <laughs> that actually has done the research about what the Buddha really said. And this is a gloss of a translated reading from the original Pali that says, essentially, we create our perceptions because of our thoughts. That is a very different thing than saying we create reality because of what we think. And actually, the Buddha's whole ministry, if you will, his whole teaching was about the ways that our thoughts get in the way of our reality. Our doctrines, our dogmas, emotional, spiritual, religious, political, get in the way of our ability to allow lives to touch us and transform us. I mean, the kinds of spirituality that lead us away from the real, they can be incredibly damaging. I saw a movie not too long ago that I'd seen before a couple years ago called Perfect Getaway. I don't want to give it away. It's kind of a fun thriller. And after the murderer is revealed, it's revealed that he's a uh, she, who knows, if you want to see it, <laughs> is a complete psychopath. And this person believes that their thoughts create reality. And so in kind of a, they take a little bit of a cinematic license and they show this person telling the story of their immense personal power that they believe they have. That if I stop looking at something, if I stop listening to someone, this person says, it stops. It doesn't exist. And so you see in back of this person on a beach, people running in the sand who freeze in place. That is not a healthy spirituality. <laughs> that are our ideas about the self getting in the way of connecting with other people. That is narcissism run amok. <laughs> it is not an appeal to the real. This is why I believe that it is so important for us to stay in touch with reality and continue to strive to stay in touch with a complex reality. And it is, in fact, a core aspect of why I believe we still celebrate this man's life, why we celebrate his heritage tomorrow. This picture taken from the Birmingham jail. I mean, it's so easy for us. It can be very easy for us to, you know, Dr. King, even Arizona celebrates his life now. <laughs> we put him on post-it stamps to think that somehow his message was not controversial. By the way, he did overcome tyranny. He did overcome American apartheid through the power of nonviolence and love. He actually really opposed tyranny, not some fanciful idea of tyranny. 
That letter that he composed, that by the way, I would really encourage you to read all of it when you get the opportunity. His letter from the Birmingham jail specifically was addressed to people who are comfortable in that society. It was not addressed to the out-and-out racist. It actually very specifically was addressed to people like me, white, progressive clergy, in which he said, this is a very shorthand version, if you really believe that our fight for equality is morally compelling, you cannot be on the sidelines anymore. I mean, the, the subtitle, the, the alternative title to the letter from a Birmingham jail, his words of the time, were these. The Negro is your brother. That was his appeal to the real. To get people who, because of their comfort, because of their privilege, like me, might sit on the sidelines, even if all of our intentions or aspirations were noble, but we somehow just wouldn't act on them. Because the truth of the matter is... And we all have to get in touch with this with our own experience. No one can grade you on this. But I know the truth of my reality is that I was born with crazy amounts of privilege. <laughs> I was born white and straight and rich <laughs> in this society in this time. I didn't do anything to merit any of that stuff. And I don't particularly blame myself for that stuff either. But this is where privilege matters. Privilege means that we can check out from the real. And this is where I want to go back to Cypher in the Matrix. I can be like that person. I can check out. I can pursue my own private quest for liberation or freedom and sever those ties with those who suffer. Because the truth is all of us suffer. That's just part of being human. But not all of us suffer equally. And one of the primary ways to attend to our own personal suffering is to connect that suffering with the lives of other people as they suffer as well too. And in that way, repair the bonds of our human wholeness that have been waiting for us all along. It doesn't diminish our liberation, our freedom. It connects it to the striving of all those who wish to wake up to reality. It is one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings that freedom finds its fulfillment with each other. These are not just nice-sounding words. This is a core conviction about the ways in which our freedom most fulfills itself. Love in action, not just love theoretical, but love in action starts with our daily commitment to be aware. And so a service day that I know a number of you are going to do tomorrow and honor of Dr. King's legacy is wonderful. And in the last couple of months, changing our relationship to Chester County Futures. So we are building relationship with people and with kids who otherwise our lives may not come into connection with is incredibly important. And what I want to say is if we're really holding open our hearts to be changed by Newtown, to be changed by Sandy Hook, it means allowing ourselves to see more of the suffering of the world that otherwise we may not. One small commitment that I want to make to this, to this ongoing aspiration to keep ourselves connected, is to do a small group in the spring, an eight-week small group, that I would like to call Meeting Aggression with Loving Kindness. 
It is for all of us who wish to engage that deep, transformative power of loving kindness. If you've ever done metta meditation, loving kindness meditation, you know that it's not abstract. It's not just, hey, I want to be more loving. It's not a daily affirmation. It is literally picturing in our minds and bringing into our hearts sometimes people we might be indifferent to, people we might resist. And so you know who has been in my loving kindness meditation this past week? James Yeager, because <laughs> he scares the crap out of me but he is a human being, and he bleeds, and he suffers, just like I do. And so if you're looking at becoming maybe a little bit more of an engaged contemplative, <laughs> maybe take that small group when we offer it next month, or the month after. To stay in touch with the real means taking some of our core aspirations of being human right to the center of ourselves, not waiting for another day to attend to them. A couple weeks ago at this service, at the 11 o'clock service, and some of you were here, we did a child dedication. And if you were there, you're not going to forget it, because that child let us know that she was here <laughs> and in our midst. We use language in that, words that I hope just don't sound pretty, but actually we take into our hearts. Words that call us to be real, that in this act of committing and dedicating this child right over here like we did, that we are not just committing to this particular life, but committing to an ongoing creation of peace and justice in this community, in this wider world, so that it's fit for the raising of all children. That we bless that child, that through their actions, she might lessen the tides of human sorrow, and that she may never earn a victory that harms another person. These are not just nice-sounding words. These are aspirations to transform our lives. And by the way, some of those aspirations might feel overwhelming. And to me, they are overwhelming, unless I do this. Ask myself today, how am I living out those ways of being? Creating peace and justice and kindness and compassion connection today so that they become real commitments not just aspirations that I might make myself feel guilty about because another day has gone by and I still haven't made any progress. But today, what can we do? To call us to the real, for the last time today, at least from this message, I'm going to give these words to Robbie Parker. Some of you know who Robbie Parker is. Robbie Parker lost his six-year-old daughter, Emily, in Sandy Hook Elementary School. By the way, the hoax calls him a liar, that he was faking the death of his child. But Robbie Parker, even in the day after his beloved child was taken from him, said these words, I'd like to offer our deepest condolences to all the families who were directly affected. It's a horrible tragedy, and our hearts go out to them. This includes the family of the shooter. And I want you to know that our love and support go out to you as well. My daughter Emily would be one of the first ones giving her love and support to all of the victims because that's the kind of person she is. As the deep pain begins to settle in our hearts, we find comfort in the incredible person that Emily was.
not a symbol, not a statue, an icon. None of those things. A real life. A life that if we listen to us can change us. So today, let's be real together. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A source of many names, of limitless, undying love that calls us into a cross and into a relationship with this universe. May we allow ourselves the space, the grace, the capacity to feel the call of the real. To allow the real to trouble us, to allow the real to heal us, to allow the real to make us into better lovers of this complex, beautiful, challenging world. And we know that there is indeed nothing funny about peace, love, and understanding. May our lives be among those this day and at the end of our days. That it could be said of us that we took peace, love, and understanding seriously. And so our hands and our hearts could be counted amongst the healers. Amen.